Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Hilaritas Podcast, brought to you by Hilaritas Press. I am your host, Mike Gathers. Join me as we explore the world of iconic writer Robert Anton Wilson, his reality labyrinth of ideas, and the many, many currents of influence running through them. Visit us at hilaritaspress.com podcast for show notes, links, and past episodes. In our last episode, I discussed the grandfather of information theory, Claude Shannon with biographers Jimmy Sony and Rob Goodman. Today, I discuss the deeper undercurrents of magic and literature in Ra's fiction with international man of mystery, Oz Fritz. I first encountered Oz at Wilson's Cruelty 101 course at the Maybe Logic Academy, right before Wilson left us. And since then, Oz has been a regular participant at the various discussion groups centered around Tom Jackson's Raw Illumination blog. To me, his posts and comments speak to a depth and breadth of wisdom that comes from putting the theoretical into practice. For a more detailed look at Oz's background, check out Tom Jackson's interview with Oz in the show notes. And with all that said, here's my conversation with Oz Fritz. Oz Fritz, welcome to the Veritas Podcast. Thank you. It's great to be here, Mike. Yeah, I'm excited to have you on. Can you uh, introduce yourself for our listeners? Yes, uh, my name is Oz Fritz. I work, I make my living as a music producer slash sound engineer. Robert Anton Wilson kind of changed my life in my early 20s when I read Cosmic Trigger. Just opened up a whole world for me. Not only his story, but every all his references to people like Wilhelm Reich and John Lilly, Alistair Crowley, Gurdjieff, Timothy Leary, Buckminster Fuller, the list goes on. So I probably spent about the next 10 years or so just following up on all these people he had turned me on to and became a lifelong fan of Robert Anton Wilson. And uh, is that how you discovered magic? Absolutely. Um, that was my introduction to uh, Alistair Crowley, which was kind of a good in a way. I didn't get all the um, horrible stories and the uh, mm-hmm. legends about him, but more of a, an objective, uh, a rational introduction to him. And um, not only my introduction to Crowley, but in, in the introduction to Kabbalah. Cosmic Trigger, to me, is a foundational book in Wilson's uh, oeuvre it almost reads in parts like a magical diary he's being very mostly very straightforward there's not a lot of the uh you know guria ontology where he's possibly um you know giving you bs to make you think for yourself he talks about his journey he talks about getting turned on to crowley through alan watts and, and he he talks about how he got into kabbalah he actually gives keys not only for sort of intellectually grasping it, but for bringing it into your life as a practical thing. Um, in that regard, it's with the uh, what, what he calls, I think, the 23 en- enigma, enigma, and um, the 23 conspiracy where he starts seeing 23s everywhere. 
And I'm not the only one. A lot of people who have studied Wilson's books say that, you know, when they start getting into this, all of a sudden they start, you know, noticing these coincidences or synchronicities around the number 23. And in Cosmic Trigger, um, Wilson says, he, I think he kind of compares that to um, cracking the DNA code, like the number 23 was sort of his, his uh, introduction into numerology and, and uh, numerical correspondences and stuff like that. And then he goes on through the book to show, you know, how he uses Kabbalah and how that fits into his, uh, his journey. So Cosmic Trigger has kind of a, a skeleton tea of how to use Kabbalah. Is that Yes, exactly. And then he, he elaborates further in his fiction. Um, you know, starting with his first uh, major fictional work was Illuminatus Trilogy. And, uh, the, you know, the chapter titles are all uh, from, this, from the Tree of Life, the Kabbalistic Tree of Life. And, um, and there's, you know, he starts... Um, it's kind of more coded in there. There's not there. I think there's some direct instruction, but it's more sort of illusion. And um, if you read uh, like Eric Wagner in his book, Insider's Guide to Robert Anton Wilson goes into the Kabbalah in Illuminatus, but he gets even more specific in his next, I believe it's his next um, fictional work, which is Masks of the Illuminati, um, which would be the, you know, Illuminatus was written with Robert Shea, so Masks is, is just himself. And he's got, um, you know, uh, the pretext of that book is a, uh, a student of magic, Sir John Babcock. And so that gives Wilson the context to, to instruct in magic. And, he, and so he's introduced to the Kabbalah. He's given some uh, Kabbalistic riddles and puzzles and... and um, for me, it, it you know, as someone who just kind of naturally um, uh, took to magic and wanted to study it through Crowley and all that, it gives a lot of life. It gives a lot of juice to it, like because you're seeing, you know, an actual like kind of yourself, like a real student trying to grapple with this stuff. Whereas if you just get it from Crowley, it's it's a little bit like what the hell is this kind of thing, you know, and. Um, and that's kind of what Wilson does in, in all his works is he just sort of, he brings in a life force to it. You know, it, it kind of mm. makes you real in your life. And um, so it's my, my supposition that, um, it, that, that you can look at Wilson's fiction as an entire body of work and that he's, he's uh, got like a whole school of thought, his sort of, take on magic which is um um i don't know was it phil farber who said in one of the introductions to the book that no one has sort of um introduced alistair crowley better than robert anton wilson and and uh, that was mm. true for me. um so you in other words um, you you can learn Crowley's system and Crowley's magic um, without necessarily going through the formal organizations to the OTO and the AA, which I'm not saying you shouldn't do, um, but it's not necessary to do that. And the reason um, I prefer this kind of presentation, and I think a lot of Wilson fans would, is because it's non-dogmatic and it, it's... Um, he's not telling you how it goes or what it is. A lot of it, he's leaving to the student to figure out for themselves. 
And that's, I think, one of the keys to um, to his particular path is that um, he he's decidedly not playing the role of a guru. Um, you know, like a guru in the in the original Eastern sense was someone who took you across to the other side, someone who gave mm. you enlightenment. Um, you know, Muktananda used to give what he called Shakti Pot, which is he would zap people with energy and they would be kind of instantly awake and and they would feel it, but then they didn't know how to get there themselves. So, you know, in the path that Wilson and others like him, it's really about, you know, the student going at their own pace and figuring it out for themselves. And I think there's a bit of a safeguard in that, in that because um, um, you can only go as fast as you can, you know, decipher it and figure it out. And, and so it, um, you know, it's, it's a at your own pace kind of thing. And, you know, because there is a danger to it, you know, Wilson writes about it. He's very candid in cosmic trigger about his adventures in chapel perilous. And, um, if you do embark upon this path that, you know, eventually, um, you're likely to encounter that territory. Can you, can you say a little bit more about chapel perilous then or, Sure. Well, um, there's two uh, main ordeals in Crowley's system, um, Mm. what he calls ordeals. The first one he calls the knowledge and conversation of the holy guardian angel. Um, And then the second one he calls crossing the abyss. And the abyss is supposed to be the uh, sort of separation between the world of illusion and the real world, you know, seeing things behind the appearances and all that. Um, but crossing that abyss is, um, you know, you basically kind of lose your mind or, or um, you know, everything, all your beliefs kind of collapse. Um, the, uh, one, another way to look at it, um, you know, Aldous Huxley in his book, Doors of Perception, had the, uh, the model that, um, that we filter out a lot of reality and that when we're doing... You know, he used the example of psychedelics, but it can be, you know, yoga or or ritual magic or something. But we're opening up those filters. We're letting more energy in. So when you go into Chapel Perilous, there can be a point where all those, Gurdjieff calls them buffers, all those things that separate you from everything else kind of collapse. And all of a sudden you're you're experiencing all this energy and it can be very chaotic and confusing. Um you know, it can be like, like you can be, um, uh, waiting in a line to get a coffee or something. And, and, and all of a sudden you just feel rage or you feel like really distraught or upset or something for no reason for no, nothing in in your life is making you feel that way. Um, but then, you know, you notice that someone ahead of you or behind you, it, it looks like they're going through that same kind of crisis. So you're picking up on their kind of um, uh, distress without really knowing at first that that's what it is, that it's not you, that it's someone else. That's what I mean by these sort of filters collapsing all of a sudden, you know, um, all this, you know, telepathic awareness or whatever, you got to kind of um, start to deal with all this extra energy. And that's where the training of magic really comes in handy because, 
Um, if you know how to banish things, if you know how to, uh, make a protective space for yourself with like Mm -hmm. the pentagram ritual or the hexagram ritual, you're kind of putting up a little, um, a barrier to not having all this energy collapse on you. I love the way you put that and how, what comes up for me is, um, the popularity of plant, what they referred to as plant medicine these days and how that's opening up these filters and buffers and uh right i'm not sure that there's a lot of information out there on how to deal with it um but what you're giving here is is how to how to use magic as a way to uh, provide some structure to that chaos or a manner of navigating right well larry i remember larry said in one of his books that you know the practice of yoga was to prepare the nervous system for receiving the, this mm. kind of extra energy. And, and it's, you know, other people have said that, you know, people who are um, in insane asylums or whatever, they've just maybe opened up too fast to this and, and they're not able to process it and balance it with their regular life. Right. Right. Makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. You said something that caught my attention and that this is kind of crossing the abyss is one of two pillars, I believe, of Crowley's system and the other being knowledge and conversation of the, the Holy Guardian Angel. Yes. Could you touch on that, the, the knowledge and conversation pillar? Sure. Yeah. I, I was calling them ordeals is, is how they call ordeals, them. Ordeals, right. Yeah. Um, so in Crowley's system, all your initial magic is supposed to go toward this thing called the knowledge and conversation of the Holy guardian angel. Now, um, what the hell is that? You know, um, <laughs> um, you know, I would call it, uh, a multiplicity, meaning that there's different answers to that, to what it is. Um, Wilson talks about it directly in cosmic trigger and in masks of the Illuminati, he kind of talks about it experientially. Like that's mm. part of the plot of the book. At the very end, um, the the last section, which is section five, they're basically going through that ritual. Now, um, so taking into account that it's a multiplicity, it, it it will manifest to different people in different ways. Like it can be, and Wilson goes uh, goes into this, and it, it it's sort of if you apply his idea of model Gnosticism to this. Um, you know, you can get different models of the Holy Guardian Angel. So one thing it's supposed to be, it, it can be like um, an external intelligence that's kind of knows a lot more than you do, or a higher intelligence that's guiding you almost, uh, or even protecting you, similar to the sort of Roman Catholic idea of a guardian angel. And um that's one model. The other model is that it's really a part of your brain, that it's your higher consciousness that you're kind of learning to um, talk to. You know, literally conversation is in the is in the um, is in the formulation of it. And um, so um, so one thing to know is to, to begin with, to try to start putting your magic toward that. It's a uh, um really the key to understanding a lot of this is learning Kabbalah, the system of Kabbalah. <clears throat> so the knowledge of the conversation of the Holy Guardian Angel is supposed to start in Tifereth. 
And Tifereth is the sphere right in the middle. It's connected with the, it's associated with the heart chakra and with um, deities like Buddha and, and Jesus and Osiris. And um, it's, if you look at the tree of life, it's the cent- central sphere on it. It's the only one that's connected to all the other ones except for Malkuth, the uh, material world. And, um, and so, so that's where the knowledge and conversation, that's where you're, you're, you're trying to get to as a aspirant is to reach that sphere. So, um, you know, I've looked at it like, you know, is it the intelligence of the heart? In other words, you know, that's one way of looking at it. Another way, um, but it also, so again, there's a range to it. There's like, just sort of getting to know it. And then there's the complete full-blown experience of it, which kind of sounds like what yogis call samadhi, or they refer to it as the union of the microcosm with the macrocosm. So the union of your own world with everything. So, mm. you know, like samadhi, that, that I would say, I mean, I personally... If I've ever experienced that, it's been in in seconds or whatever, like just, you know, so um, for a beginning student, I think there's easier, you know, ways or there's um, there's a better introduction to it. And um, so what happened to me once is that I was trying to write an essay on the Holy Guardian Angel of what it is on a computer. And for whatever reason, the computer crashed. And when the computer came back on, when I got it back on, on the page where I was writing this essay, it said, the holy guardian angel is a guide. And I had not written that. So, um, and, and, you know, in, in the, you know, yeah, again, I'm probably will strain credulity in this, in this podcast, but, you know, that's the world of magic, right? Um, that these things can happen and, and, you know, they are more likely to happen through electronic means. Um, but anyway, so I, I sort of took this into consideration that um, the way the Holy Guardian Angel work for someone who's not getting the full-blown experience is that it can guide you. It can, you can sort of create your own spiritual guide and it guides you um, you know, through the conversation, which um, I would say the conversation goes by you do some work, you do some exercises or some ritual, and then you wait for some kind of feedback. And the feedback can come from coincidences, synchronicities. And this is, again, in Masks of the Illuminati, um, if you're paying close attention to it, Wilson is showing how that works. Mm-hmm. Um, so here, here's like a what I would call a real basic contact with the Holy Guardian Angel um, in the story. So Sir John Babcock is on his way to meet his first magic teacher, who is his name is George uh, Cecil Jones, who was who started the AA with Crowley. So he's on his way to meet him for the first time in London, and he goes past a theater that's that has a play called Patience, and so mm. he sees the word Patience. And then he's in the meeting with um, with Jones, and um, I forget, he asks him some question, and Jones basically says, well, you're being too, um, you know, you're, you're trying to go too fast. It's better to have the 
patience of a fisherman than what he says is the rapacity of a journalist, meaning, you know, take your time, whatever. So if if he was to have just gone there and um, get this thing from Jones, oh, you need patience, that's just like someone telling you something. And whenever someone tells you something, you go, well, you know, maybe that's true, maybe that's not, who knows. But the fact that he he saw that word patience that synchronicity of seeing it just before means that there's possibly some kind of non-human or non-local agency, holy guardian angel perhaps, that's kind of communicating that to him, that that's what he needs is, is patience. So that's just a real basic example, and that's an example of, of paying attention to synchronicities, paying attention to coincidences. And... Um, This gets me into one of the main important points that Wilson stresses over and over again, um, and also Crowley, is is the idea of skepticism, of learning to um, be skeptical of anything that might happen to you. But it's not a, a skepticism of just stopping and being, you know, saying, well, being in doubt or whatever. It's like kind of, I don't know, more of an informed skepticism. You know, it's learning to, um, to to think for yourself and maybe not every single coincidence is your holy guardian angel telling you something or, um, you know, you got to, um, you know, one of the things you, you need to watch out for is self-deception. Like, am I saying that's a coincidence because I want it to be and um, or... Am I just seeing all these 23s because I'm only looking for 23s? And there's a way as you sort of um, start upon this work where you you um, kind of can discern what is a real communication and what is just noise because there is noise. Mm. And, um, you know, Wilson works with his idea of Gurya ontology. That's kind of one, one, one way he has of not having the reader or the student believe everything he says without, um, without questioning it. And um, um, so he introduces that. And that's what's good about starting with Cosmic Trigger. There's not that much in there but of Gurya ontology. But in Masks of the Illuminati, he starts doing that. And you have to pay attention. Um, he doesn't want it to be where you're just a reader and you're sucking in all this information and you're automatically believing it and then going out. And he'll have... You know, he he plays tricks on the reader. For instance, there's one um, Kabbalistic analysis he's doing where he goes, well, 15 and 7 makes 23, therefore, and then he continues on. And (laughs) the conclusion is wrong, obviously, because 15 and 7 don't make 23. So you got to, you know, pay attention for stuff like that. And he has Jones um, give Babcock a cartoon from Punch Magazine, a, a British magazine of the period. And it, it has like a, an encounter with a customs inspector or something. And, and uh, Jones tells him, look, if you meditate on this deeply enough, you'll, you'll find the whole secret of illumination. So Jones, you know, just dutifully takes it back to his, his house and puts it on the wall and and meditates on it, and, and um, for the life of him, I mean, you can see, well, it's basically talking about two different um, reality tunnels, but how is that the uh, secret of illumination? 
And so he comes back and, um, and he tells Jones, I, I just don't understand it. I can't figure it out. And then, and then Jones gives him the complete works of Lewis Carroll and says, well, this is your next assignment to read this. You'll find a lot of Kabbalah in this. And now, you know, Babcock is just going basically, you know, bullshit. You know, I'm not, <laughs> this is like Alice in Wonderland. What are you talking about? This is children's stuff, you know? And, and so, so that was kind of the test. So he gave him the cartoon. He told him something in it, you know, there is no secret in the cartoon, but, and this whole, um, when you start to do that in yourself, basically what happens, you find that your um, faculty of intuition gets stronger and you start being mm. able to rely on it more. And um, I mean, you can just do, you know, in yourself, if you run across a coincidence, like um, you can say, well, does this mean X? Um, and I'll act as if it means X and continue on. And then you can maybe get some verification that you were right or, or equally um, verification that, no, you just kind of made that up or whatever. Um, so that, that becomes stronger and it all, I think the whole agenda behind all of this is, is increasing intelligence that, you know, I think that Wilson wants people to get smarter. Um, and, um, I just, I just will read a quote from masks that I think, um, uh, sort of says, all, you know, sums that up, um, so this is what Wilson's calling this the Golden Dawn mission statement, but it's not in reality. It's Wilson's, you know, version of the Golden Dawn mission statement. And he's quoting something uh, from someone named Miss Sprengel, which is the mythical founder of the Golden Dawn. Like they found, mm. you know, supposedly found these manuscripts from her, but no one ever actually found the person. So anyway, this is the quote. Using the techniques learned from Miss Sprengel and the cipher documents, they gradually recreated the whole working repertoire of Kabbalistic occultism underlying the Rosy Cross Order of Freemasonry and sought earnestly to establish astral contact with the higher intelligences on other planes who could gradually educate and guide them in the risky transition from the domesticated apehood of historical humanity to a higher stage on the evolutionary scale. Mm. So I like that because he's mentioning the risky transition. And um, I've always, from reading Leary, you know, the Eighth Circuit model of consciousness and, um, and Wilson even is, there's not, you know, I always had the impression that it wasn't that risky or wasn't that hard to sort of get into the higher circuits. But once you start, start trying to sort of um, establish a presence, you know, above C5, it gets very difficult to stay there. Like I know Larry at one point says it's, it's volatile, meaning you can get there and then get thrown back into the lower circuits. But I think this is kind of one of the um, agendas that Wilson has is to just make people smarter. At at the end of Prometheus Rising, he says that most problems that humans encounter can be traced back to stupidity. And Mm -hmm. um, 
he he brackets stupidity with the word insensitivity and mm. um which is meaningful because um I think when you get to more experiences in in circuit six, I think you start becoming extremely sensitive, like your filters start going down. And um, I mean, I was um, married to a very uh, sensitive psychic woman um, who some days she would wake up just kind of freaked out and you know, nothing was really happening, but then you turn on the news and you find out there's been some big earthquake or some big disaster. And she's feeling that. And um, I think that sensitivity comes with with uh, circuit six. And so some things that were kind of, you could tolerate before, like people killing each other and whatever, you just sort of realize, you know, you know, that's just completely, you know, stupid, basically. Um, Wilson, I think he calls war, um, one of the biggest problems that humans have in, in masks. He says, um, he's talking about how with the advance of technology and all this rapid change, he says that people are going to be forced to get smarter. They're going to automatically get smarter. And then he, at the end of it, he says, unless another war comes along and sends them back to the dark ages. Mm. Um, the beginning of Illuminata starts with the, uh, all the countries in the world closer to nuclear war than they ever have been, um, which is almost our situation today. Right now, yeah. And then he talks about the problem of war. That's how Schrodinger's cat starts. So interestingly, um, with both of those, he states the problem of war, but he also alludes to a solution, which I would call C6 consciousness. Because in, um, um, in Schrodinger's cat, he, the first number you get is a number six, which is the number, the key number for Tifereth. And then in um, Illuminatus, he starts the sort of action of it in Central Park. And Central Park is another um, metaphor for Tifereth because Tifereth is right in the center. Mm. Starts with the heart. Right. Is that it? Yeah. Or, or, yeah, I mean, unfortunately, when you say that, there's, um, I think that uh, we give a lot less uh, credence to that intelligence. Like it's, if you consider it a brain, like the intellect is a brain, there's, there's a lot more to the heart than sentimental Hallmark cards and saying, I love you and romanticism and all that. There's a, there is an intelligence to it. And, um, and the sort of dangerous aspect of it or what, you know, why you need to take things slow is because um, when you start activating that, you not only feel more joy and feel more love and feel more of the sort of higher emotions, but you also feel more pain. You feel more pain in the world. It doesn't necessarily have to be your own pain, but you, you, you know, there's that word sensitivity again. You become very sensitive to it. So that, that's one ordeal, the knowledge and conversation of the Holy Guardian Angel. And then Chapel Perilous, you know, is the second ordeal. And in the Crowley system, it kind of is implied that it goes linearly, um, that, you know, first you get to the to Tifereth and then, you know, on the Tree of Life, the 
crossing of the abyss goes from Tifereth, the heart center, to Kether, or to the supernal triangle, which is those three spheres are what is is the true reality. That's the abysses or the Chapel Perilous goes in between them. Um, but I don't think it's linear. Like I think that you can enter moments of Chapel Perilous on your way to that and come out of it. So it's got some complexity to it. Yeah. Yeah. It's also it's also important to remember that. All of this, we're talking about maps. These are maps. Like, nobody is saying this is how it is. Um, I mean, Crowley does say that, but then, you know, um, not exactly. I mean, um, this is, the map is not the territory. So when you get to the territory, there might be things that don't agree with the map, but don't, you know, the map isn't, you know, the territory. You're, You're there experiencing it. So that's what's happening. You know, the, the quote that I came across within the last couple of years is um, all maps are wrong, some are useful. And uh, that really helps me right. wrap my head around some of this. Yeah. So if we were to circle back, you know, Robert Anton Wilson uh, was turned on to Aleister Crowley by Alan Watts, who recommended uh, Israel regard his book, I and the Triangle. Yes. I forget the constraint he put on it, but it was something to the effect that it was the best, best book on mysticism of the year um, or whatever it was. But but Wilson uh, read that book and and dove whole hog into Crowley and seemed to pick it up extraordinarily quickly. He was writing rather complex analysis within a year and infusing it into Illuminatus and uh, went on exactly. for... Yeah, for three or four years there, really writing a great deal about Crowley and magic. And if I understand um, part of your thesis, in a sense, is that his his previous knowledge of Joyce really helped him uh, wrap his head around Crowley? Well, that's my speculation. I don't know that for sure. Um, You know, we do know he was he was into Joyce for a really long time. And um, Joyce has a great deal of magic in his writing, starting from his very first short story and kind of increasing as it went along until Finnegan's Wake, where you can, you know, see a lot of it there. And um, there's something about this is sort of, again, it's going to strain credulity, but there's, um, there's an idea that, you know, when a writer writes something that the... Um, their sort of sense or their life force is going into that. Their space is going into that. I, you know, as a recording engineer, I, I really um, try to set up the space of the recording studio because I feel that um, consciousness goes into the recording. It's very subliminal. So I would speculate that from reading all the magic and joys that it just sort of sunk into uh Wilson and and so when he came along um, and found Crowley, which is kind of um, whereas Joyce is putting it all in terms of literary techniques and stuff like that, Crowley is very straightforward. I mean, he's saying magic is this and this is what you do type of thing. I just have another quote about the Joyce magic um, that kind of emphasizes the magic in his writing because. Um, 
Joyce, um, Joyce used to run what he wrote by other people, like before it was published. And there was, there was a guy, I think his last name was Budgen that he, um, you know, he'd write stuff for Ulysses and then he'd, you know, read it to this guy and ask his opinion and stuff. So this guy is, um, quoting about Joyce's technique. He says, with regard to the language used by Joyce, particularly in Finnegan's Wake, it is sometimes forgotten that in his early years in Dublin, Joyce lived among the believers and adepts in magic gathered around the poet Yeats. Yeats held that the borders of our mind are always shifting and from part and form part of the universal memory. This universal mind and memory could be evoked by symbols. When telling me this, Joyce added that in his own work, he never used the recognized symbols, preferring instead to use trivial and quadrivial words and local geographical illusions. The intention of magical evocation, however, remained the same. Interesting. I mean, as you were saying that, I was thinking about how Crowley seemed to use the the Kabbalistic framework as as a kind of a base for a lot of his symbolism, and uh, and I wasn't quite sure what Joyce is using, and I think you just alluded to it right there that he uses kind of whatever he could find. Yeah, uh, but Joyce also uses a lot of Kabbalah too, mm. which um, Wilson acknowledged in the. Um, Tales of the Tribe course, the online course, um, because I was, you know, being myself and and giving Kabbalistic illusions in there. And, and um, one of the other people was sort of calling me out saying I was full of it or whatever. And Wilson chimed in, well, I see Kabbalah and Joyce too. And so there's the qu- sort of question if um, there's no um, evidence that Joyce ever read Crowley. However, there's so much Mm. similarity, like someone, you know, managed to get uh, write down all the books in his library and Joyce's library. And there wasn't anything by Crowley. So, you know, Joyce may have had a great magical education through Yeats, but not through Crowley. However, um, I was researching this point and I found what could possibly be allusions to Crowley and Finnegan's Wake. Maybe, maybe not. But one thing we do know is that um, Crow, uh, Joyce was very sort of aware of reviews of his work and what people thought of his work because he he struggled for a long time. I mean, he was considered a genius, but it took him a long time to sort of get on everybody's map and all that. And um, um, according to the his the biography, he paid a lot of attention to that. And and Crowley wrote a review of Joyce, basically calling him a genius and saying Mm -hmm. in the review, he said he couldn't go into all of it. But and for Crowley to call anyone a genius, especially a contemporary of his, is very rare. And and so I sort of speculate that, you know, if if uh, that Joyce would be aware that someone had called him a genius. Um, and then interestingly, also in the tales of the tribe, you know, I sometimes I read this stuff and I think, you know, I make these connections and I wonder, well, am I stretching it? Is this a little too, you know, is this just me trying to find something there? And Wilson, um, in that course, he came up with this thing in Finnegan's Wake 
that he connected with a German um, uh, version of the word of sin as restriction. That's one of Crowley's things from the book of the law. And so it was interesting to me that Wilson found something in Finnegan's Wake that through German, through a German allusion, he connected with Crowley. So so I'm not the only one, I think, that stretches things or that, you know, looks for these. <laughs> well, certainly that's the fun of the, or a lot of the fun there is is yeah. finding the connections, whether they were intentional or not. And Yeah. And so both Joyce and Crowley were really bringing a lot of Eastern thought and philosophy and mysticism into their work and introducing that to the West. And yeah, exactly. Which was kind of a unique to both of them. Um, I'm not um, a, a Joyce scholar. I haven't read them a lot. So, um, uh, I mean, I have, you know, read them enough. But um, this idea of him bringing in Eastern philosophy and stuff, uh, I personally have not recognized very clearly. But that's what Wilson states in his talk on Joyce, is that he credits Joyce for that. I do know that, that Crowley um, introduced yoga and Buddhism and all that to the Western Hermetic tradition, which was not there before. And uh, so his system is combined of, of yoga as one part of it and magic is the other part or, or magic and mysticism. Right. And really synthesize the two is... Well, one, one is sort of preparation for the other. Yeah. The uh... way... The way um, the way Crowley puts it is that in mysticism, you go inward. You try to, you know, you go into your asana and you meditate and you try to um, block out all the stimulation from the world. Whereas ritual magic is the opposite. You're externalizing things. The wand is a symbol of your will. You know, the, the cup is your a symbol of your receptivity. So you're using things in the world to... Um, you know, trigger higher consciousness or whatever. I believe that um, uh, the way he puts it is that magic is a path toward mysticism, that mysticism is the ultimate where oh, you're trying to get to. Yeah. But again, all of this stuff and, every, you know, everything I say here also should be taken with a grain of salt or with skepticism because Crowley used Greek ontology. There's stuff he says that's complete. BS. And um, so you just, you can't um, just blindly accept anything these people say. You got to sort of say, well, maybe that's true, maybe not. And then, and then ex experiment, you know, and from your own experience, you can say, well, that's right, but no, that's not right for me or whatever. Right. With Wilson, it seemed like there was very clear times where you had to ask yourself, is, is this real or is he, he pulling my leg? And, and then, you know, exactly. I believe that was a deliberate attempt to to get us, the reader, to, you know, for we're, we're forced to a place where we have to think for ourselves. Yeah. Which, you know, decide for yourself is ultimately uh, one of the objectives there. Yeah. And that's, I think, one of the reasons um, Mass of the Illuminati and um, is presented as a puzzle. I mean, it's an occult mystery. And um, so right away, right at the beginning, um, Wilson introduces Sherlock Holmes. And this is a, you know, literary character that comes up like Nabokov, Vladimir Nabokov in his novel Pale Fire, which we studied in Raw Illumination as a, as a study group. 
also has Sherlock Holmes right at the beginning. Um, because you're you're wanting to approach it like you're a detective, like you're mm. trying to figure it out. Sherlock Holmes is actually an important figure in in this particular um, school because, um, uh, or maybe school is the wrong word, this particular tradition because um, he it's just his power of observation. The way the uh, amount of attention that he brings to something is that he's learning to read things, not through like superpowers of the mind, but just because he's awake, he's paying attention to something, he's seeing all these clues. So that that's kind of a real um, key to it. Because, um, I mean, if you look at someone, this, this happened to me where all of a sudden, um, I could read things in people's body language, like I was getting intuition and people I knew well, like my wife or whatever, like they would say something and I could see from their body, you know, other communication or whatever. Um, so just the, the sort of power of observation. But the Sherlock Holmes thing gets sort of played up in masks because at the end when um, uh, or toward the end, when Joyce and Einstein are trying to figure out Babcock's mystery, they list all these things that sound exactly like Sherlock Holmes' story. Like, this is the case of the extra coincidences or whatever. And so it's Sherlock Holmes is very much sort of baked into, um, into this um, story. Mm. So in the introduction to Ishtar Rising, you had mentioned to me that the quote about how it was composed like a lot of his fiction in the hermetic style. Yeah, and I think we've been talking about that quite a bit, but maybe you could explicitly uh, define the Hermetic style for us. Well, the Hermetic style is a, is a tradition. Um, you know, Hermetic comes from Hermes Trismegistus, who uh, most people know the quote, uh, that which is above is like that which is below, which you find in nearly every book on magic. It's in masks. Um, and you know it comes from ancient egypt but it kind of um it's a tradition that combines alchemy and um um uh well wilson goes into it in that introduction of what it's all about but hermetic also means seal like airtight so it's locked so again the reader it's not Wilson doesn't spoon feed his and you know his things. It's it's up to the reader to figure it out. And and again, he gives it to you in um, the form of puzzles. Um, masks starts with a puzzle, which I personally can't figure out. I don't know if if it's just something there or not. But there's a note at the beginning saying that he he writes something and he said there's only one misleading thing in the above thing. So right away you're kind of wondering. So um, the Hermetic style, I would say, you know, um, he's taking the traditions presented, you know, in Crowley and Joyce, but adding a lot of his own research into it. Um, and that's part of it. It's, it's a very, I would call it eclectic because you're um, taking stuff that works from you from some places and rejecting it, but not being um, dogmatically tied to one particular thing. Like you're just not involved in Crowley's school 
um, but you're adding things like in Cosmic Trigger, he adds stuff from John Lilly that's very important, like um, the beliefs unlimited in John Lilly. I don't know, when you start, like when I started practicing magic, there's something, you know, this is probably from societal and parental programming, but there's something in the back of your mind that's going, um, this is ridiculous. Like I am drawing, you know, invisible pentagrams in the air, or what am I doing? This is like, you know, how can any of this possibly work? Um, there's always, for me, there was always that, like there's sort of a lack of confidence that you could even do it. And, um, but Wilson gives a sort of program, uh, John Lilly's Beliefs Unlimited, um, which is designed to sort of break down those limitations, those own limitations you have about what's possible. And, um, you know, even, you know, I come across people who tell me stuff and, and it's just, I don't believe it's true or whatever. There's still, you know, even I've been doing this for years and years that there's some things that I just don't think is possible or whatever. Well, so we're in the hermetic style, it seems like a lot of like what Wilson writes is a mystery locked up in the language of Kabbalah. So for, for me, for example, I don't really have a, a grasp of Kabbalah and I feel like there's just a ton that's going over my head and I need to study that in order to understand what's, what the joke is in a way. Right. And, uh, and then I'm kind of left, you know, is it going to be worth the effort and why, why shrouded in all this mystery in the first place? Right. Um, well, it's interesting you you mentioned that about what is the joke, because in, you know, Wilson's got these great talks on Robert Anton Wilson explains everything. And um, the reason he says he got into deciphering Crowley and Joyce is to unlock the jokes. Like he wanted to find out what, yeah. the, uh, you know, what was so funny or what they're getting at. And he, he presents them as jokes. The reason he says he really liked Crowley is because he's the funniest mystic he ever came across. And, you know, he lists all these other people, but, you know, Crowley is the most humorous. Um, but in terms of Kabbalah and, and why should anyone bother to, you know, to learn all that? Um, I think that there's a sort of this... Uh, this idea that Kabbalah is extremely difficult to learn and figure out because it is, it is pretty complex. And I don't think it is. Um, I think that's a limitation um, because Kabbalah itself just means to receive. And mm. so you kind of, um, you don't need to like, uh, like memorize all these correspondences and associations. You kind of can build up your own lexicon like this number means this to me through your own experience. And um, so I'm very lazy about all of this. And I never, you know, Crowley says you're supposed to memorize the tables. I've never memorized the tables. Um, you know, it's sort of as simple as getting his dictionary, uh, his Kabbalistic dictionary, which is called 777 and other Kabbalistic writings, and just learning basically how the, um, like there's gematria, which transduces uh, letters into numbers. Uh, there's a table in the back. And so you just sort of basically, you know, you can look up that table and, and just add it up and see um, 
what the number is that he's getting at. And it's just kind of um, the way I started is that I just started with, um, okay, we're supposed to be getting to uh, Tifera. That's the knowledge and conversation. That's the first thing. And that's um, key number six. And so I would just look at things, you know, I would look at that key number in the dictionary and all these things were associated with it. And I'd write them all down. And then I would just pay attention to stuff in my life that had to do with that. And it just kind of grew from there. And, um, you know, obviously, like when you start running into 23s all the time, you start wondering, well, what does that mean? And Wilson gives some explanation. And and um, it's just sort of by, you know, without having to sort of uh, jump into a whole area that you don't know nothing about, just like learn one or two things and just sort of go from there. And and the sort of key is in is in. Um, in doing it, like the understanding magic, like you'll um, understand a lot just by doing the rituals. Like you'll, you'll start to say, Oh, that's what, that's why I'm doing this or whatever. And um, th- another reason is to, um, so he defines Kabbalah in masks. Uh, one definition is multiple vision. It gives you mm. multiple vision. Um, so you're able to see a lot more. Um, you're able to um, um, get a lot more information. And, um, you know, not only in Wilson, because he's not the only one that does it. Like, obviously, Joyce, we mentioned, there's Thomas Pynchon, um, brilliant writer, and I would call him uh, Wilson's literary brother. Um, I think they each refer to each other in their writings. Um, Hmm. And they both both very influenced by Joyce and by um, and by magic. Uh, Pynchon is much more sort of guarded about it. He's guarded about his whole life, and and this is where. Um, so in Crowley's system, like the reigning deity is is Horus, which is a twin god, and one aspect is a male aspect that goes out. And, and the other aspect is a female aspect that is goes in and is is quiet. And um, if you look at the two writers, Wilson is very sort of extroverted about his his involvement with magic, and and he you know he writes about it. He went out and, and gave lectures about it, etc. Um, whereas Pynchon is exactly the opposite about his whole life. I mean, you don't you know I, I would. Uh, I would really love for Pynchon to um, talk about Robert Anton Wilson's influence on him. I know, again, I'm, you know, possibly impossible because he doesn't give interviews or anything. And the only thing we heard of from him is his voice on The Simpsons. But, <laughs> um, but there is a definite, I'm, I'm, you know, I've just read, uh, I've been reading Against the Day, and there's overlaps between that and masks, and and um, he alludes to Wilson in, in there a couple of times. Um, so another reason to not just learn Kabbalah, like Kabbalah, the reason for that is because it's sort of going to give you, it's going to unlock, you know, the artifacts. If you look at these books as artifacts, as hermetic sealed containers of information. 
it unlocks that. And so you, you start to um, learn how to do, you know, more things, more exercises. You have more multiple vision. Um, but anyway, I was struck the very first time I heard um, Wilson speak at the Open Center in New York. Um, at the end of it, he said that, you know, people asked him, what did he get out of all his everything he did, like all his his experiments, not just in magic, but in, in raising consciousness? And he said it was kind of a surprising answer. But he said one result was that he was just happier. It, you know, mm. he just had happiness, not that happiness was something he specifically went for, but as a, a side product just from, you know, having a higher consciousness he was happier. And I, I would say that's also true for my own life. Not that everything is rosy and all that stuff. You, you go through your, you know, ups and downs and stuff like that. But generally, I mean, I wake up and I think, man, it's just great to be alive. And I'm in a really good situation. And, you know, and that's before I turn on the news, but. Um, <laughs> right. You got to soak it in for a minute before you yeah. turn on the news. But also learning Kabbalah can show you not just in these literary stuff, but in the course I took with Lon Milo Duquette, who's another very advanced magician um, and a great educator. Um, he talks about the Kabbalah, the Beatles Kabbalah. Hmm. So if you're, you know, you can, you know, listen to your favorite musicians. Um, I'm a big Bob Dylan fan. Um, and I don't think, uh, I mean, Dylan has referred, Referred to the tarot, which is part of the Hermetic tradition, and and the I Ching and all that, but I sort of don't think that Dylan is is intentionally putting Kabbalah into his lyrics like Wilson uh, did. But he works invocationally. Dylan does, like you know, he's written about his songwriting process, and it is invocational. Like he's trying to go outside of himself. He's trying to draw in things from outside just in the sort of uh the larger mind as it was put in that quote about joyce um and so you'll find things like um six white horses uh were finally delivered down to the penitentiary you know six six reminds you of tifereth and the penitentiary is sort of um ourselves and our own sort of limited belief systems uh you know, that's that's kind of a Gurdjieffian metaphor that we're sort of inside a prison because we're locked in into this world of illusion. Mm. Um, but anyway, that's another reason for Kabbalah. And, it, you know, whatever, like you can see it, you know, in your life all the time. You just, you know, it, it's just paying attention also to coincidences. Um, that's a reception, too. That's a form of Kabbalah. So I wouldn't th I wouldn't think of Kabbalah as a sort of. Um, specific system that you kind of have to learn but just as a process of receiving i'm not sure where this fits in at the moment but this uh phrase of pattern recognition really comes in to my head around all that and is a that what of a what of recognition it's a pattern recognition pattern, pattern recognition yeah yeah i guess maybe that's part of the receiving in a way that if you are paying attention to the patterns you're receiving in a in a different way or a new way Right. Uh, exactly. I, I think that's a key to it, because if you if you um, if you just start seeing a number over and over again or it comes up in your dreams or in, in the article you read or whatever, um, 
uh, you know, you can look up that number. You can, what, what is, is there anything to this pattern that I'm seeing over and over mm. again? Um, and that's how, you know, so when I say all this about magic and literature and Wilson's writings, in my opinion, I've barely scratched the surface. And, and so this is another reason to learn Kabbalah because it, it sort of doesn't end. Um, like I just read masks again for maybe at least the fifth time. And I've seen way more stuff in it than I haven't seen previously. Um, and, and, and all of those books are like that. Like, you know, I do these, uh, reading groups at, at Tom Jackson's site, excuse me. And, um, you know, you read a chapter and then, you know, you comment on it. And so I think that's a brilliant process. It's um, in art, they call that ISO magnification, where you're isolating a particular section and then magnifying it because you're not just reading straight through. And, um, and so I see the Kabbalah there and I don't, you know, I have to work for a living and all that. So I don't spend a lot of time dissecting it all, but just from what I've seen, um, you know, I comment on it, but I can tell that there's a lot more that I'm not getting. And so one of the patterns I, I've seen um, in Wilson's book is this letter combination of S and C. Um, mm. And that's not only in, in Wilson, um, Joyce has it in um, Portrait of an Artist. Um, it's very prevalent Pynchon has probably has it the most of all. And in his, he wrote an essay in um, the introduction to slow learner, where he basically called, he refers to the SC code. So, um, so for Wilson, you have uh, Schrodinger's cat, uh, Sigismundo Celine, um, and um, the beginning of Illuminatus. So S and C Kabbalistically add up to 68. In, in Illuminatus, um, it starts at Central Park just off of 68th Street. Um, <laughs> Masks of the Illuminati, it starts with the case of the constant suicides. So there's a CS, constant suicides. And he also has the number 68 written there, you know, not just, just as that number. Um, there, it, it comes up in uh, uh, when the walls come tumbling down right at the beginning. Um, in um, Cosmic Trigger, it starts off the first section. It's called The Serious Connection. So all of this, I'm not um, going to give an opinion. Oh, Jill Deleuze, this philosopher I'm into, also uses that code. So I've seen it enough to, it's not just my imagination or whatever, and um, so, interestingly, I was directed to that. Like, I didn't all of a sudden just see that or whatever. And the way I was directed to that is because um, I've been part of, I worked um, with E.J. Gold in his school for a while. I, I was kind of the, the engineer. He had a home studio, and I took care of the archive. And he's also a musician. I recorded him and stuff. And so one day I'm working in the studio, and um, and Gold comes up to me, and Gold is a very enigmatic character, like, you kind of don't really know, it's hard to figure out what he's talking about, and I found that, um, 
using Kabbalah, he is a Kabbalist, so that kind of helped me try to understand. And, and um, so at one point, I think he was saying all this stuff that, you know, I was getting the number 68 a lot, and I sort of didn't know what it had to do with anything. And he came up to me and he said, you know, you should really read the golden apple. You should really read the golden apple again. I'm okay. And and that's kind of, you know, sort of typical of his enigmatic style. The golden apple is the second book of Illuminatus. So I don't know why he didn't just say you should just read Illuminatus again. But anyway, I started reading Illuminatus. This was in like, you know, 2005, no, 2004, something like that. And then I started to see, oh, wow, 68's on the first page. And, and, you know, that's where I started to sort of recognize all this. And that's where, although I'd read, you know, I'd read Illuminatus, you know, at least three times previously in a lot of his other books, I started to see a lot of this Kabbalah. It's, it sort of became, I, I became what's called maze bright. Like I started to see the, the, the maze that was, mm-hmm. you know, the Kabbalah that's put into it. And, um, and, you know, I, um, so I have my own theories about that. I don't necessarily want to go into it too much because again, and this is what I'm kind of guilty of too, is that um, like Wilson doesn't give it to you. Like he doesn't say 68 is this, 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 and this is why you should do it because Again, there's a reason. There's it's sort of different from me telling someone something to them figuring it out for themselves. So, like you know, Gold himself, he didn't say, "Well, sixty-eight is this," or and Gold's never had any like direct, maybe one or two conversations about Kabbalah the whole time. Like he doesn't teach magic. Like Wilson teaches magic. Um, Gold, I would say, practices magic in his own way in his own work. But it's not the, you know, Crowleyan type of thing. Um, so he kind of directed me back to Wilson. And there is a little bit of, a, uh, I don't know what you would call it, but a, uh, a return or, or a looping back. Because when I was thinking of um, moving out to California to, to work with them, I was very skeptical of doing that. Like I'm very much in sort of the individual style of Robert Anton Wilson and, you know, why join groups and all that stuff. And so I was at a, um, a lecture of Wilson's and at the end in the question and answer period. Um, and, um, you know, uh, at that time I was taking Uspensky way too seriously. Um, you know, Gurdjieff guy, like it was all life and death type of thing. And so I asked Wilson, I said, you know, Spensky says that it's impossible to achieve transformation without going to a school. Like it's not going to happen. Right. And I, I asked him what he thought about that. And Wilson, all his answers, there was to my question, there was like pregnant pauses, right? Like longer than normal pauses. Right. And he goes, I think that's a good idea. That's what he said. I think that's a good idea. And another long pause. And I say, well, can you recommend one? And, and then another super long pause. And he says, well, there's EJ Gold's uh, Mm. fake Sufi school out in California. And then he says, but get out before it's too late. (laughs) 
which is a great thing to say. I mean, you know, um, because again, that, I think that has multiple meanings. On the one hand, like you didn't, you didn't, you know, don't become a disciple or become part of a cult or whatever, which is kind of how it can look from the outside to someone who's not part of it. But also, you know, I, I've thought about that a lot because um, uh, it wasn't just his decision, but there was other factors that made me to make that leap. And uh, so it was interesting to me that Wilson recommended gold and then, you know, 10 years later or whatever, gold comes up and says, oh, you should go back to Wilson and check him out. Oh, right. And, um, but get out. Um, so kind of wondered like, well, does, is, does, well, is he speaking from experience? Like, is he part of something that he can't get out of Wilson himself? Like the, mm. Um, invisible college or whatever that is. Um, but also another way, if you look at it Kabbalistically, so Crowley had this thing, this is part of Kabbalah, um, is that in the Book of Lies, he uh, takes ordinary words and then, and then um, makes magical formulas out of them. So like the word on, he, it's got all this significance. And one of those formulas is the word out get out that's actually in and and interestingly it it he puts that in chapter 23 of the book of lies of course so get out before it's too late can be like get out of your self get out of your belief systems get out of your tunnel realities before it's too late before you're like trapped in there or whatever um so anyway yeah i can see a few meanings there right like Learn what you can from the group, but get out before you get assimilated or whatever it is. Yeah, yeah. There's a number of them there. Is there anything else you'd like to cover while we're here? The the one thing that comes to mind is that you uh, reading rereading Schrodinger's cat, as I understand it, recently found a little uh, Ukraine coincidence that is quite striking to me. Right. Yeah. It, it, it's, it was very startling because I wasn't expecting it. And um, this is my, to me, this is evidence that, that Wilson is working in vocationally, that he's drawing things into his book that are outside his conscious knowledge because he couldn't have possibly known that Ukraine would be a big deal now. And so I'm just, um, <clears throat> I, I, the reason I started to reread it again is just um, Eric Wagner made a comment about the morphogenetic field in, in uh, the, you know, one of the groups. And um, I just thought, well, I want to find this quote and see the context of it. And um, so I just decided to read it again. And I'm reading away and it's about um, three months into the war. And all of a sudden, you know, uh, the character Hugh Crane knocks on, uh, I forget whose door, but um, Mary Margaret Wildblood, maybe, or something like that. And, um, and she hears Ukraine. Now, it's one thing, like, to me, you know, when you uh, see a Kabbalistic thing that adds to a number that, you know, corresponds to something, you, you always question, well, am I just sort of seeing that? But when it's actually just literally there, Ukraine, and then in that particular section, because Schrodinger's cat, a lot of it are, are short sort of sections, um, at the end of it, it, it ends with nuclear annihilation. And um, so I read on and there's, um, um, 
Hugh Crane, you know. So this presents, for me, the way I read it is that every time I'm reading about Hugh Crane now, I'm thinking of Ukraine. Is he? Is there something about Ukraine coming in from, from his holy guardian angel or wherever it came from, the non-local circuit of that goes across time, um, and um, and so Hugh Crane gets assassinated, um, and then in his his uh, sort of Bardo state as he's dying or whatever, Vlad the Impaler comes through. I mean Vladimir Putin. Um, and then that assassination, I thought for sure he was using John Lennon's assassination because it takes part on Central Park West. It was a guy with a gun waiting on the street. There was a lot, and same month of the year, December. And I'm thinking, okay, he's using this assassination. He also, you know, conflates it with Kennedy's assassination, with Lincoln's assassination. He's trying to do the archetypal assassination. I thought that was kind of interesting that that he considered Lenin to be an assassination. Um, but then I saw the copyright on it and he wrote that like, or the copyright on it is a year before Lenin actually died. So, you know, it seems like he is, there are like trans things that go across time that that's going into his, his writing. Um, and, uh, and Wilson himself in the same, in the talk about Joyce on Robert Anton Wilson explains everything. He goes into a whole long thing about all the predictions he found in Joyce like he apparently put a television in a bar like before televisions were popular and all this stuff. And, and so you expect that someone who's into that and, and I mean, in mass, he's obviously, there's a huge Joyce influence. Um, and so you expect someone who is taking magic and Joyce that if it's real, there's going to be stuff like that in his own there's also in Schrodinger's cat, the next section, like it's only 20 pages after uh, Hugh Crane's assassination. It goes into who's Zelenka. And, mm-hmm. you know, and immediately if you're on that train of thought, you're thinking of Zelensky and, and why is that there? You know, why did he decide to come up with that little thing? Because it's not just something that's mentioned. It's something that um, the character is, it's uh, Frank Dashwood Here's some music on the radio. He's wondering who it is. The announcer says it's this guy Zelenka, a Czech, I believe. And um, and so for the rest of the novel, this thought keeps coming up: who's Zelenka? It's not something that happens once. And then finally, at the end, it's Hugh Crane. It's Ukraine who tells him who Zelenka is. And and in the book, it's I mean, this is true. He was a a Czech Baroque composer, but to me that. Um, that's part of Kabbalah also, is that um, the phonetic, the sound of the words, this is the, the sort of contribution Joyce had to it. And this is the best way to read Joyce is to, is to pronounce the words out loud. Mm. And you're going to get multiple vision, multiple meanings through the sounds of the words. And um, uh, Wilson goes into that in masks. I mean, he does that in masks. Um, and um, so that's that's kind of a whole aspect of Kabbalah that that kind of goes into uh, Wilson's transmission. Uh, there's just one other thing I wanted to say, which is that yeah. 
so you 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 sent the email about podcast ideas and and um, because I've seen a lot of magic in Wilson's literature, I came up with this one. And then I saw, you know, I'll read masks again just to have a little more familiarity. And um, in masks, he's making the point that magic comes through literature. Like it's not just there is magic in this literature. But for instance, Babcock, near the beginning, um, uh, wondered, he's wondering about Shakespeare. He says that in the play The Tempest, um, all these Shakespeare scholars agree that the character of Prospero is Shakespeare himself. That's what Wilson says. And he says, he wonders, well, why did, if that's true, why did Shakespeare make Prospero a magician? Why did he not make him a poet? You know, and there's a connection with magic and literature. And then later on, when the character of Aleister Crowley finally shows up uh, toward the end of the book, um, it's at a lecture that Babcock goes to, and it's a lecture on the soldier and the hunchback, which is Crowley's essay on on sort of enlightened skepticism. And um, um, but Crowley starts the lecture with "Do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law," and then and then he says, uh, "The reason I do that is because." It uh, usually all the fools in the audience will leave immediately upon hearing that. So it's kind of a banishing. And then he says, just like Shakespeare does with Duke Dame, Duke Dame, D-U-C-D-A-M-E, that Shakespeare uses that as a banishing. Um, Duke Dame is a nonsense word from as you like it, but I'm I'm not uh, either. Also, I'm ignorant of a lot of Shakespeare, but the fact that Crowley immediately compared something he did to Shakespeare again plays out this magic and literature theme. And in, in masks, I mean, it's sort of all about literature, I mean, and magic, but you know, he has um, Shakespeare as a, as a character, Joyce, or not a character, but he's referred to a lot. Joyce, obviously, Ezra Pound, Yeats, Oscar Wilde, Conan Doyle, author Arthur Macon, um, Babcock gets turned on to magic by reading a book uh, by Lord Bulwer Lighton called uh, Viril, The Power of the Coming Race. Um, Ibsen is in there, Edgar Allan Poe, Cervantes, who wrote Don Quixote, George Bernard Shaw, Edgar Rice Burroughs, Robert W. Chambers. I mean, the, the story involves a book that kills people. So there's just a lot. Literature is very much a theme um, in this. So it was an interesting coincidence to me because I wasn't expecting that. It, it's interesting to me that, that Shakespeare relates to the, the magician archetype and, um, yeah, I've really been kind of, uh, exploring this idea that the third circuit is about magic and, and the trickster. And, and by that, I mean that I think uh, we are kind of blind to the influence that language has on our thoughts and our beliefs. And so it's the trickster in that way. And and once we start realizing the, the influence that language and, and belief systems have on our whole way of perceiving, relating, expressing. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's been a big one for me lately. So I appreciate that. Um, yeah, I, w- I would suggest if you, you know, when you get a chance to reread Masks again, because like language is a uh, 
very strong theme in there, obviously related to literature. Like he has, um, he has Joyce thanking Einstein for giving him quantum language. He connects, mm. you know, Einstein's quantum ideas with language. And then later on in the book, he has Einstein telling Joyce that he looks at language the way a biologist looks through a microscope. Mm. Wow. Could chew on that one for a while. All right, Oz. Uh, wow. It's, it's been a pleasure. Uh, yeah, likewise. I was worried I wouldn't have enough to say, so I... <laughs> Not a problem. No, I um, really appreciate your the, the depth of your knowledge on magic and your ability to communicate it is um, great. I love listening to you and uh, appreciate the conversation. Always look forward to hearing what you have to say. So thanks for your time. You're very welcome. I just want to close with one book recommendation. Yeah. It's by uh, someone named Rafa Zabor, who it's not directly connected to Wilson, but it kind of is through Eric Wagner. And the book is called Street Legal. It mm. definitely has um, some Kabbalah in there. And um, I would say some magic. It has uh, references to that SC formula. And it's um, it's a great book about uh, it really gives a lot of semiotics which means signs, nonverbal communication. And mm. it's just a great read also. Street a, legal, is that it? Street legal, highly recommend it. Um, you know, you get Street Legal is also the name of a Bob Dylan album, um, which Rafa Zabor acknowledged on Facebook. And, um, and so you'll see other references to some Dylan songs in there too. And that's kind of part of his Kabbalah. Part of the thing. All right. Well, you have a blog, The Oz Mix. Is there anything else you'd like for us to know about? Just that I think Wilson, I don't think, is is recognized as being a master of this hermetic tradition like he should be. I think it will become clear. Gabriel Kennedy's biography is coming out next year. The only biogra biographical material I sort of know about Wilson is by Eric Davis in his book, High Weirdness which I love Eric Davis's writing um, in general. And this, I'm critical of his, his take on Wilson because he seems to want to reduce it all to psychology and sociology. Um, mm. but, but in fairness, it was, I think it was written for academia. I think he said he wrote it as a thesis or something. So I, so I want people to know that, um, that Wilson is a master of this. And I have a blog I can send you the link to it um, that sort of is a personal experience that I had with Wilson in that regard. Okay. Yeah. Send me the link to that. And uh, yeah, I know uh, Gabriel Kennedy Propanon has put uh, an extraordinary amount of research and effort into this book. So I, yes. I look forward to seeing that. I, I've learned more just from little nuggets he's dropped here and there about yeah. his book on his blog that, uh, uh, it should be a good one. It's going to be mind blowing for all Wilson fans. Yeah, and I think uh, the the material there is with the Wilson within the Wilson canon to to unpack a great deal for for generations to come. Uh, Absolutely, like, yeah. Like Joyce and Crowley. Uh, yeah, it's amazing uh, what you can find when you start digging. Exactly. All right. Well, I think that'll. That'll call it good. Thank you again for your time. It's, it's been an absolute pleasure.
Yeah, it's, it's my pleasure too. Thank you for having us, Mike. That concludes our episode. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed it. Thank you to Oz Fritz for taking the time to chat and for all his preparation ahead of our talk. Thank you to Christina Pearson and Richard Ross of Hilaritas Press. And thank you to our engineer, Ryan Reeves, for putting it all together. Our next episode, releasing on the 23rd of January, will feature anarchist writer Wayne Price speaking about Peter Kropotkin. Until then, I am your host, Mike Gathers, signing off with love and cheerfulness. Amor et hilaritas. Hilaritas.